everybody. Proverbs chapter 3 this morning. Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs chapter 3 this morning. As you guys are coming into your uh, seats here, let's have a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Lord, good to be here this morning. Um, I know there's a lot of families out traveling here with the weekend. Just want to pray you'd be with them, keep them safe, and give them ministry opportunities, purposeful ministry just for you and all you say and all you do. Think of Move Up Sunday today, just a smooth transition with the teachers and the kids, all for your glory. But for right here, right now, you teach, we listen, let your Holy Spirit lead, guide, and direct in your name. Amen. Proverbs 3. Continuing our study here through Proverbs. Just a couple quick reminders as we get ready to get back into Proverbs here. Please remember, Proverbs, practical, daily, godly living. This book is not a lot of theology. This book doesn't have a lot of end times. This book's focus is how to go out there and live as a Christian and a non-Christian world. So be it at school, be it at work, be it at home, practical, daily, godly living. The key verse is Proverbs 1-7 that we spent a lot of time on when we first started this day. So if you didn't get a copy of that, grab a CD of it, listen to it online. Because that's the beginning. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. We want to start at the beginning as understanding what it means to fear God. This does not mean you tremble and shake. There is a fearful aspect of God, but this means there's an awe, there's a reverence for who God is. And so when I look at my life, my finances, my decisions, everything I do, I take that through the filter, through the lens of the fear of God to say, Lord, what do you want me to do? And also we have to remember the definition of wisdom. Wisdom, God's way of thinking. Not your way of thinking, not my way of thinking, God's way of thinking. You want wisdom. The world has a lot of wisdom, but it's not God's way of thinking. The wisdom of the world is not what you want. You want the wisdom of God, and that's what this book is about. So with that being said, we left off last week in Proverbs 3.12. We're going to be getting it here in verse 13 as we continue to learn about wisdom. And we're going to understand wisdom. And then as we get later on in the book of Proverbs, you get to the Proverbs that you're used to. Those little one, two-sentence nuggets just packed full of so much information and such few words. We're going to get to that in a few weeks, but we're really laying the foundation of what wisdom is. Proverbs 3.13. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. And the man who gains understanding, for her proceeds are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. She is more precious than rubies, and all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand riches and honor. Her ways are ways of pleasantness, and all her paths are peace. She is tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. Now, most of the time out here, when I mention the word happy, I say we're not trying to go for happiness. And you remember we define happiness like this. Happiness is a temporary thing. You've heard me say this before. Christmas is happy. Days off from work are happy. Birthdays are happy. But we focus on joy. The joy of the Lord is our strength. One of the fruits of the Spirit is joy. This idea of no matter what situation you're going through, no matter what's happening in your life, you have joy in the Lord. It's interesting here that in verse 13 it says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom. Now this word happy in the Hebrew is also translated blessed. It goes both ways. Which kind of shows that there's a spiritual connotation, a connection with this. It's not just about being happy. Because God just wants me to be happy. No, God wants you to be blessed. And there's a big difference there. Psalm 1.1 says this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. It's the same word. He's saying you're blessed, you're happy when you're spiritually doing what I want you to do. I don't know how many people over the years have come into my office and they say something like this. 
I just want to be happy. Well, what do they mean? Do they want to be happy like birthday, Christmas happy? That's the world. That ain't going to happen. But do they want to be blessed, spiritually blessed happy? That's a totally different idea. That's what we want. So I want you to walk out of here today being blessed, being happy in the Lord because you have that spiritual connection and you understand who he is. And when you understand that, verse 13, you find wisdom. Wisdom. Wisdom is so valuable. Look at how it describes wisdom, verse 14. Better than silver, better than gold, better than rubies, verse 15. It's the most important thing. Verse 15. All the things you may desire cannot compare with her. I don't know about you. I can desire a whole lot of things. My mind can want a whole lot of things. And the Bible is teaching me that nothing compares to wisdom. Nothing. Remember, the guy who wrote this, Solomon, had everything a man could ever want. Everything. And he's the one that's saying, no, the most important thing is wisdom. I want you to really chew on that this week. Because given the opportunity to have health, wealth, and happiness versus the wisdom of God, I'm afraid a lot of us would go with the health, wealth, and happiness. And it's like, no, we want wisdom. We want to truly know God's way of thinking, God's way of doing things, and understand the blessing that comes out of that. Remind ourselves, verse 15, all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Nothing compares to wisdom. And please note verse 17, all her paths are peace. All of her paths are peace. When you walk in wisdom, you're walking in peace. When you walk in wisdom, nothing compares to that. Think back to over decisions you make in life that you now look back and regret. Were those decisions made in the wisdom of God? Probably not. But at that moment, at that time, you thought it was a great decision. Or your flesh thought it was a great decision. God is trying to tell you nothing compares to living in wisdom. And to give the best example of this, Solomon, through the Spirit, name drops, verse 18, the tree of life. Well, that should remind us here about this tree of life here. She is a tree of life to those who take hold of her, and happy are all who retain her. Happy are all who retain her. Retain her. Cling tightly. Hold fast. When you hold fast to wisdom, you are blessed, you walk in peace, and you don't regret the past. What happens when you don't walk in wisdom? Well, let's go see what happened back in the Garden of Eden. Go with me to Genesis 2, please. Tree of life, back to the beginning. Let's talk about how amazing this idea of the Garden of Eden is. The original creation. I think we forget this. The original creation was absolutely amazing. Everything was a blessing. Everything was a blessing. Your health was a blessing. Perfect health. We forget that. We're so used to little aches and pains and problems. Some of you have been maybe battling something for years, maybe decades. The idea of having perfect health, what a blessing that is. Spiritually, it was a blessing. Complete communion with God. Something that we experience to a point because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. If you're here this morning and born again and saved, you have that. But this idea of nothing, the world, no sin, no Satan, nothing hindering a relationship with God, the complete spiritual blessing. The blessing of relationships... Adam and Eve, a perfect marriage. Nothing. Nothing causing strife, anger, frustration, bitterness. Nothing. The perfect marriage relationship. And I think we forget this because we look at Genesis 3 and we remind ourselves that work is a curse. Work was even a blessing in the Garden of Eden. Take a look at Genesis 2. Look at verse 15. The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to tend it, 
and keep it. Adam had to work, but it wasn't work like we can even imagine. We can't even fathom what work was like in the Garden of Eden. Work was a blessing, a blessing. Now, some of you will come up to me and you'll say, oh, I love my job. And you do to an extent, but they still pay you to be there. Because <laughs> if they weren't paying you, you probably wouldn't go in on your own accord. <laughs> work is a curse. In this world we live in, work is a curse. What was work like back in the Garden of Eden? Can you imagine being in charge of the Garden of Eden, <clears throat> tending and keeping it? What a blessing that would be. Perfect soil, no weeds, no problems, no issues, no nothing. It would be the blessing of all blessings to actually go out and quote-unquote work. There'd be joy and fulfillment in it. I was telling the story at the 8.30 about the idea of gardens. My wife has always loved gardens. Never worked out, but she's always loved them. First year that we were at our, our new house, probably about 12, 13 years ago, she wanted to have a garden, so we picked a spot and, and planted the garden, and little did we know, we picked the lowest spot. And the yard, so the garden was flooded all year. Okay, so fine, no big deal. So next year, we moved it to a new spot. And we lived over there, and we have good old Hoytville clay. And so you try to take the tiller, and the tiller just bounces, you know, like 10 feet in the air, just bouncing off the clay. Not going to work. So I was talking to Rich about it one time, and Rich and Ron Armstrong, who used to attend here, is now with the Lord. Rich and Ron started coming over, and they made this their pet project. They brought over a load of just beautiful black topsoil. They brought over a load load of horse manure. They brought over all this stuff and just worked it and worked it and worked it. And it was just wonderful soil. So then, like, we now finally have the garden that Dawn has always wanted. And so, planted the garden. Now, once you plant the garden, what happens? Weeds come up. Now, I'll till it for her. I'll plant it for her, but I do not pull weeds. I don't. And this is my logic. And Ron and I used to go round and round on this. Whatever I can buy, get in my garden, I can buy at Walmart. That's what I'm just telling you right now. And I don't have to pull a single weed to go buy that same produce or vegetable at Walmart. I don't. Ron disagreed, Dawn disagreed. So this is my rule in gardens. I plant it in May, and then I mow it in June. That's just the way it looks at it. Once the weeds get out of hand, I mow it. So the gardens have died. You know, the garden did not exist. And I think last year, Ron actually lived with us for a little bit. And Ron came out and sat in the lawn chair. And Ron kind of said, do this, do this, do this. And once again, it was beautiful. It came up great. And then the weeds came. So I decided this year, for the first time in my life, I'm going to have a garden. I I personally decided I wanted a garden. The the, the soil was amazing. You go out there with the tiller. It's just beautiful black. It just turns up so nice. And I went and I did everything the way it was supposed to be. You know, growing up with my dad, who was, was a perfectionist, I got the stakes out, I put the rope down, I, I made the rows straight, I, I put enough space in between the rows that I could take a tiller in between them, and then I put enough space in between the plants so I could take the tiller this way so there wouldn't be weeds. Did everything. And so, and I only planted what I wanted. Only planted what I wanted. Dawn's like, oh, you should plant tomatoes. No, I hate tomatoes. I'm not planting. Why am I going to take care of a plant I don't want? should plant cucumbers. Don't want cucumbers. You know, I, I, why am I going to take care of something that I have no desire for? I don't. So I planted one thing, which was sweet corn. That's the only thing I wanted. Planted two rows, and I had early sweet corn, just like Dad did. I planted two rows, had late sweet corn. I had two more rows to do super late sweet corn. And it was the perfect garden. It was Garden of Eden. Tend, keep, and it was just wonderful. No weeds, everything's straight, everything looking great, until the corn starts popping up. And corn's popping up, and it's getting big. It's getting beautiful. looks great. And then Dawn's ducks and chickens come over, and they would eat that corn right from the top. So I killed them, every single one of them. So if anybody wants a duck or chicken, I got a lot of duck and chicken. No, 
It's the curse. You can't get away from it. The, the weeds, everything was done, the soil, now there's ducks and chickens. You can't. So the, the idea of the Garden of Eden and work and blessing and perfect, we can't comprehend that. So the Garden of Eden is perfect. Remember the reference back to Proverbs 3, wisdom. So it's perfect. Verse 16, Genesis 2. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Out of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. God says, stay away from one tree. Well, what would wisdom tell you? Stay away from one tree. This is perfect. Perfect health, perfect spiritually, perfect work, perfect marriage, perfect everything. Why would I even go dabble where that tree's at? Richard one time was telling me that he uh, was making a joke that he studied this out. He said it figured it took Adam and Eve about 15 minutes to find the garden, the tree, because that's just human nature. What's the one tree I'm not supposed to see, Lord? What's the one tree I'm not supposed to see? Let me go look at it. I just want to go see it. And that's what human nature does is it takes us to that. So what you see here is this battle. I have the wisdom of God that is trying to lead me down the path of righteousness where there's peace and everything I could ever want. And then I have the wisdom of man that's telling me, oh, no, do this flesh, do this flesh, do this flesh, and that's when you'll really be happy. So what happens now? Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent, the serpent is Satan. We know that from Revelation 12 and Revelation 20. Serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said, you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. Now right here is where everything changes. You have perfection, perfect health, perfect blessings, perfect everything. And then this serpent starts talking to you. And he just asks a question. Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Please note that that's what Satan does. First thing he does is he just twists. He just wants you to start thinking, twisting. He dangles a carrot in front of you. Sure, sure, go ahead and look at that. It won't cause any problems. Sure, go ahead and talk to her. It won't cause any problems. Sure, go ahead and do this. Sure, go ahead and do that. Just dangles it right in front of you. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the tree of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You should not eat it, nor should you touch it, lest you die. Now, there's nothing recorded about not touching it in verse 3, lest you die. Is this, I don't know, is this something that God said that was not recorded? Or is this human nature that when somebody starts asking and questioning and twisting, it makes me start questioning and thinking and twisting. And that's what Satan wants us to do. And next thing you know, I'm up at 2 o'clock in the morning saying, does God even exist? Because I'm just thinking. That's what the enemy loves. Satan goes from twisting to now he just outright lies. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Please note the progression of Satan. Twists truth, outright lies, and then he makes a promise that he can't keep. Verse 5, For God knows that in that day you will eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You really want wisdom? Eve, eat it. You really want to know everything? Eat it. Please note the progression of the enemy one more time. He twists, he lies, he makes a promise that he can't keep. Jesus said in John 8, that Satan is the father of lies and he's been a liar from the beginning. This is his pattern and he still does it today. Nothing has absolutely changed in any way whatsoever. So next thing you know, we see verse 6 and we say, well, I should eat it because there would be more. And that's where Proverbs 3 is trying to tell you there is no more. Wisdom is the greatest thing you can get. It's better than gold, better than silver, better than rubies. Who wrote that? Solomon. 
Solomon, who was the wisest man that ever existed. In fact, Solomon, who he's talking about better than gold, silver, and rubies, he should know. He had everything. It says in 1 Kings that Solomon was so wealthy that silver meant nothing to the kingdom. Silver wasn't even valuable because there was so much gold. But yet we always think there's something better. And so in our flesh, we go after things we shouldn't. So then what happens? Verse 6, she sees it's good for food, pleasant the eyes, tree desirable to make one wise. What a dangerous thing. Takes it, eats it, verse 6, gives it to her husband. Sin enters the world, verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were open, and they knew they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Please note verse 8. Things have not changed in 6,000 years. It hasn't. Satan twists, lies, makes a promise he can't keep. I sin, and guess what I do in verse 8? I want to hide. I want to hide from God. I don't want to be around other Christians. I don't want to hear teaching. I don't want to hear worship. I don't want to do anything because I know I'm wrong. And since I know I'm wrong, I want nothing to do with it. And I hide. Verse 9, the Lord God called Adam and said to him, where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was, t- and I was afraid because I was naked and hid myself. Afraid why? Because I wasn't walking in wisdom. We're going to learn in a few verses here. When you walk in wisdom, you don't walk in fear. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And this is the fall of man. Please also note what happens in verse 12. Hasn't changed in 6,000 years. When I get caught, I just want to blame somebody else. The woman you gave to be with me. It's not my fault, it's Eve's fault. And it's really not Eve's fault, God, it's your fault. Because I was doing perfectly fine with all my ribs. And next thing you know, you give me this woman. I didn't ask for her. And there's a problem. I just want to repeat this to the point that you say I've heard this. Because it has not changed in 6,000 years. John eight forty four. Satan is the father of lies. He was a liar from the beginning. He twists truth. He outright lies. And he makes a promise he can't keep. We fall into sin. And when we fall into sin, I hide from God. I don't want to do prayer. I don't want to do worship. I don't want to be in church. I don't want to be around believers. I hide. And then when I'm finally confronted with my sin, verse 12, I just pass blame. It's not my fault. It's not my fault for anything. It's the way I was raised. It's this. It's that. It's not my fault. It's God's fault ultimately. Because if God is sovereign and in control, he's in control of all of this. So God, you're really in fault for bringing sin into the world. And it's just silliness. This is not wisdom of God. Jump back now to Proverbs 3. Wisdom of God stops and says, no. It's better than rubies, better than silver, better than gold. And we are blessed and biblically happy. Verse 18, when we retain it, hold fast, hold tightly, cling to it. That's the wisdom we want. And to prove how important this wisdom is, verse 19, the Lord by wisdom founded the earth. By understanding, he established the heavens. By his knowledge, the depths were broken up and clouds dropped down the dew. Wisdom. Wisdom is the beginning of creation. Go to Psalm 19, please. Psalm 19. As you're going to Psalm 19, I just want to read a quick passage out of Romans. You're going to Psalm 19. Romans 1 says this. For since the creation of the world, his, meaning God's invisible attributes, are clearly seen. 
being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so they are without excuse. God says, my invisible attributes are seen through creation. I, I cannot stress to you the importance of creation. This is why in Peter, it talks about how in the end times, people will reject creation. Because if you reject creation, you're rejecting the idea of a creator, which means you're rejecting the idea of responsibility to something that's created you. That's why creation is so vitally important. And parents, grandparents, if you have any influence at all over the next generation coming up, make sure they understand the creation of God. It is so vital. Creation is God's biggest witnessing tool. Please remember, you will not find a verse in the Bible that says it's your job to prove God exists. I think sometimes as Christians we struggle with that. We think it's my job to prove to the world that God exists. No. Can you imagine serving a God that was so small that he needed you to prove that he exists? I don't want to serve that God. I serve a God that's so big that he says, yeah, James, you don't have to worry about proving I exist. I I got that covered. Well, how are you going to show the entire world at the same time your invisible attributes? Creation. Take a look here at Psalm 19. What a great psalm that deals with the idea of creation and the idea of the power that goes with it. Verse 1. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out throughout the whole earth, and their words to the end of the world. Creation is always there to prove that something is out there bigger than us. And then it covers all languages. You know... If God had ever called me to go to a different country to serve, I'd have to know the language to serve, to be able to really communicate the gospel effectively. So if I look at these people in the Amazon, or I look at the aborigines in Australia, I can't speak their language. I can't minister to them. Guess what? Creation can. See, take a look one more time. Verse 2. Day unto day utters speech, and night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language or their voice is not heard. That person in the Amazon, that person in Australia can look up and see the sun in the day and see the moon at night and say there's something else out there. And if their heart is interested in knowing what it is, I firmly believe that the scriptures teach that the Holy Spirit will bring somebody in that person's life to represent the truth of Jesus Christ to them. That's the beauty of creation. And God is saying back here in Proverbs chapter 3, the Lord by wisdom did all this. This is the power of wisdom. I hope you walk out of here today saying, Lord, I want to fear you, and I want your wisdom. Because your wisdom is more valuable than gold, silver, rubies. Your wisdom brings peace. Your wisdom helped create the world. Your wisdom is everything. The problem is my eyes don't sometimes want the wisdom of God. My eyes want that temporary flesh. My eyes want that little nothingness. I was reading a devotional one time by Oswald Chambers, and he called them mud pies. He says, when you're little, you're perfectly content with a mud pie. You'll go out, you'll play in the mud, you'll get completely dirty, and you'll be thrilled with the mud pie, and you'll make the mud pie whatever you want. My younger boys still do that. They make the mud pie, and they'll say, Dad, what do you want on the mud pie? I want whipped cream, which becomes dandelions. Um, then they're going to throw raisins in, which are still, and they're content, and they bake their little mud pies, and it's just, it's fun. Now, I'm assuming, if you're here today, in your 40s, 50s, or 60s, you're not going to go home today and make mud pies. I'm just trying to imagine if I told Dawn, Dawn, date night, we're making mud pies. I don't, I don't think she would go for that. But it's like, the boys and I have so much fun, Dawn. No. You, and, and Oswald Chambers was saying is you move past mud pies. And his point was, he goes, the flesh, the things of the world are mud pies. When you're young, young in the life, just not saved, mud pies are great. 
Eventually you say, I want more. There's got to be more, Lord. And your eyes are always going to battle going back to the mud pies versus I want the deep things of God. Look at verse 21. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. I think of Hebrews 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Keep your eyes on the Lord and everything else falls into place. Matthew 6, Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. When you get in trouble, be it in life, be it in marriage, be it at work, be it at home, be it at school, it's probably because you got your eyes off the Lord. Let's keep our eyes on the Lord. Verse 21. My son, let them not depart from your eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. So they will be life to your soul and grace to your neck. Then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. When you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. Do not be afraid of sudden terror nor of trouble from the wicked when it comes. For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Keep your eyes on the Lord, verse 21. Keep wisdom right there, verse 21. And it does two things. It's life to your soul. Your soul. That talks about the internal being that you are and the eternal being that will live on forever. So from a spiritual standpoint, internally and eternally, I have life. And then grace to your neck. That means it's something I wear when I'm out having daily interaction. Hence 23, then you will walk safely in your way and your foot will not stumble. Wisdom helps me eternally keep my eyes on the Lord. Wisdom helps me practically as I go out and just live this life in a fallen world. And it helps me at day and it helps me at night. Verse 24, when you lie down, you will not be afraid. Yes, you will lie down and your sleep will be sweet. How many of us just want to sleep at night? You lay in bed and the thing is you can't go to sleep. You have worry and fear about what's coming up. You have regrets over the past and you can't sleep. You get woken up in the middle of the night and it's just all flesh. You're out of sorts. You're just thinking about everything that's wrong, thinking about what's going to happen. You just can't sleep. The Bible is saying when you walk in wisdom, you will not be afraid and your sleep will be sweet. Boy, it's not a prayer. Lord, help me to walk in wisdom so when I lay down at night, I have no fear, no worry, no anxiety, no regrets because I've walked in wisdom. You know, I, I always tell you this. Whatever I teach, I got to live it the week before or live it the week after, just the way it is. And so I knew I was going to teach on this point. So wouldn't you know, last night, 3 o'clock in the morning, I get woke up. And wouldn't you know, at 3 o'clock in the morning, it's just fear. Fear about this, and you didn't handle this right, you didn't do this right. And I'm up from 3 to 4. And I finally reached a point of saying, this is ridiculous. Lord, I love these people. I did the best I can in you and in the Lord, and I prayed over them by name. I gave them to the Lord and said, Lord, I can't deal with this. You have to. Lord, I just need to have the sweet sleep. And wisdom, give me wisdom on how to handle this. The enemy will do whatever he can to distract you and bring in fear. Hence, 25, afraid, sudden terror, trouble. But what does wisdom give you? 26, the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Wisdom blesses you daily when you just live and walk in him. And when you have wisdom, it changes how you interact with people. 27, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due. When it's in the power of your hand to do so, do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it with you. Wisdom says, why am I hanging on to stuff? It's the Lord's. I can bless somebody, let me bless somebody. And by blessing them, I can represent Jesus Christ. So Lord, it's not my stuff, it's your stuff. Wisdom, who do you want me to bless? 29, do not devise evil against your neighbor, for he dwells by you for safety's sake. Do not strive with the man without cause. If he has done you no harm. Wisdom says treat your neighbors right in the Lord. 
Now, the question came up in the Gospels, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, everybody's your neighbor. So that means who you work with or your neighbor, who you go to church with or your neighbor, your actual physical neighbors, your family. Don't devise evil against them. Verse 30, don't have a fight with no reason. Boy, I wish we could learn that. There's a great passage that we're going to get to here later on. Psalm 26, excuse me, Proverbs 26, 17. You heard me mention this before. Um, getting involved in a quarrel is like grabbing a dog by the ears. It's not worth it. How many of us, in lack of wisdom, have jumped in the middle of a conversation, an argument, a fight that we had nothing to do with? Wisdom says, stay out of it. It has nothing to do with you. Instead, according to Romans 12, seek peace. Pursue it. Someone has wronged you, forgive them. Love them and forgive them because to hold on to that bitterness is going to destroy you spiritually. And you may be sitting here saying, yeah, but they're wrong. Of course they're wrong. God knows they're wrong. They know they're wrong. They're convicted. Now, they may be putting on a nice fake false front to show they don't think they're wrong. Trust me, the conviction of the Holy Spirit digs pretty deep. But why am I getting involved? Why am I dwelling on it? Why am I devising evil? That's just going to hurt me. Stay out of it. I don't know how many times this happens at home. I'll have all the boys in the living room and something will pop up. And I'll say, hey, what, what happened here? And somebody will say, oh, that was mean. I would say, well, you know, that shouldn't have happened. And one of the other boys will jump in right in the middle and say, well, I told him and all this stuff. And I usually say, yeah, I think you want to stay out of this, don't you? Don't grab a dog by the ears. It's not worth it. And I just want to ask you, look back over your life. Have you ever got yourself in trouble because you jumped in things that had nothing to do with you? Just remember that. Wisdom says, stay out. Pray from a distance. Well, I'm really frustrated at what they do, what they said, how they act. I can't sleep at night because of them. 31, do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but a seeker counsels with the upright. God knows. God knows they're wrong. Anybody that's around will see the fruit to know they're wrong. I don't know why we feel that we have to spend our life proving to other people who's right and who's wrong. The Lord says, I'll separate that and take care of it. The truth will be evident. And there's so much more joy when you just realize, I want to represent truth. I want to walk in peace and joy. I'm not going to envy the oppressor. I'm not going to choose his ways. I realize the perverse person is abomination. They just need to get saved. Verse 33, the curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the home of the just. Do you want to be blessed? Walk in wisdom. It's that simple. Walk in wisdom. Let wisdom guide and direct your household. Your household may be a household of one. Your household may be a household of 10, 12, 15. I don't know. But choose to let wisdom be the foundation of what you do and the true wisdom of the Lord. Not what you think. Not what you believe is best. What God says is absolutely best for your family. Walk in that. Proverbs 24 says this. Through wisdom a house is built. And by understanding it is established. By knowledge the rooms are filled with all precious and pleasant riches. What do you need in your house? You need wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. That's what's going to bless you. Let's finish this up. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit in glory, but shame shall be the legacy of the fool. He scorns the scornful. God loves the humble. What's it mean to be humble? We need to talk about this for a little bit. Humble is a really interesting word. And I brought up a lot of verses to show this. If you guys wouldn't mind putting the verses up there. Humble in Hebrew, in the Old Testament, can be translated many different ways. Meek, poor, humble. 
It's kind of interesting. When God looks at the words that he once used to describe us, they're not usually words that we would describe ourselves as. It is a compliment to be called gentle in the New Testament. Let your gentleness be known to all men. We're supposed to be humble, poor, and meek. I'm trying to think what I would do if someone came up to somebody and said, hey, I heard James, the pastor out there at Harvest. Oh, yeah. How would you describe him? Poor, meek, and gentle. Okay, well, I'm not a wuss here. Okay, come on. You know, it kind of makes it, that's the way it's kind of sounding there a little bit. No, we want to be known as bold and strong and, oh, you don't want to mess with James. No, Jesus said, no, be gentle, poor, and meek. Because remember, we're going with the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man is I want to be the biggest, the roughest, and the toughest. The wisdom of God is, no, represent Jesus Christ. So if I look here at Proverbs 3, surely he scorns the scornful but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you. I want grace. So I'm supposed to be humble. What's it mean to be humble? Now, like I said, some of them say poor. Some of them say meek. It's still all the same Hebrew word for humble. Proverbs twenty-two twenty-six: the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. I want to be satisfied. I am tired of chasing the world. Nothing good comes out of that. The man that wrote Proverbs had 700 wives and 300 concubines. thousand women later, he still wasn't satisfied. I want to be satisfied. That's going to come by being humble. Proverbs 25.9, the humble he guides in justice and the humble he teaches his way. I want the Lord to guide me. I want the Lord to teach me. I need to be humble. Psalm 37.11, but the meek, the humble, shall inherit the earth and shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. I want peace. I want to go to bed at peace. I want to wake up in peace. I want to live in peace. I want to pastor this church in peace. I want peace in my family. I need to be humble. The Lord takes pleasure to his people. Psalm 149.4. He will beautify the humble with salvation. I want salvation. I need to be humble. Realize that I am a sinner that cannot earn salvation in any way whatsoever. That it's only through what Jesus Christ did can I even remotely think about salvation. If I think that I'm bringing something to the table, that my good works, my good deeds are going to save me, I'm not being humble. Last one, Isaiah 29.19. The humble also shall increase their joy in the Lord. And the poor among men shall rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. I don't know about you, I want joy. Joy comes from being humble. This is the beauty of humbleness. Wisdom is teaching me be humble. And I'm satisfied, salvation, joy, peace. That's what I want. Just to represent God in all I do and say two final passages and then we're done. Go with me to James 4, please. James 4. this many times any verse in the bible is important when you see that same verse repeated twice pay attention see that same verse repeated three times you better be really paying attention so proverbs 3 about god gives grace to the humble is in proverbs it's in james and it's in first peter okay lord what are you trying to tell us here james 4 verse 6 he gives more grace therefore he says god resists the proud but gives grace to the humble that's what we just read back there in proverbs 3:34 therefore submit to god resist the devil and he will flee from you draw near to god and he will draw near to you cleanse your hands you sinners and purify your hearts you double minded lament and mourn and weep that your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom humble yourself in the sight of the lord and he will lift you up humble yourself and god will lift you up there's the practical application of that. There's a great verse in Proverbs that says, let a man, another man praise you, not your own lips. Have you ever been around that person that just constantly has to tell you how good they are? Yeah. No, that's not our goal in life is to uplift me. It's to uplift the Lord. I'm supposed to decrease and Jesus is supposed to increase. 
John the Baptist, who was the greatest man born of a woman, according to Jesus himself, said this. What made John so great was John constantly kept pointing people towards Jesus. I must decrease, Jesus must increase. We spend so much of our life trying to increase ourselves. I want people to notice me. I want people to pay attention. I want people to respect me. I want people to like me. I want the promotion. I want the raise. I want the toys. It's all about me. Humbleness is saying, no, it's the Lord. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Now what happens is people see that and say, okay, I humble myself then God exalts me. So therefore I get all the toys of the world. Yeah, but you know what I've noticed is when you humble yourself in the Lord, all of a sudden what the world has to offer you, you don't want. Because why? They're mud pies. Lord, I want joy. I want peace. I want peace in the home. I want salvation. That's lift me up to that. One more passage on this. 1 Peter 5, please. 1 Peter 5, one book to the right. Same verse. Third time in the Bible. Verse 5, likewise, you younger people, submit yourself to your elders. Yes, all of you, be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. It's all the Lord's. Lord, it's not about me. It's not about my piece of the pie. It's not about me fighting for what I deserve. And it's not about me being worldly happy. It's about me humbling myself in wisdom and seeking your peace, your guidance, your direction, and Lord, all the blessings that come with that, because I want to glorify you. We must decrease, he must increase. When that happens, you'll finally find the peace, the joy, the satisfaction, the salvation. Oh, that's where it all comes. Because you quit living for yourself, and you start living for him. How does that happen? By wisdom. And we got to get that groundwork laid first. Worship team, if you come forward here for the final song. Let's pray this into our lives. Lord, we want this wisdom. The wisdom that's more valuable than rubies and gold and silver. The wisdom, Lord, that brings peace. Lord, humble us that we may have the joy, the peace, the salvation that you offer.